Are you ready to jump into some true crime docs, crime thrillers, and more? Check out our website for an extensive list of our favorite movies and shows at thesirenspodcast.com slash watch, and find our favorite true crime and thriller books and authors, some covered on the show, at thesirenspodcast.com slash author alley. You can even find special deals for Amazon Music, Audible, Discovery Plus, Paramount Plus, Showtime, and even Grubhub. If you're looking to jump in immediately, check out our pinned Facebook post for some streaming service free trials on us. You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. A break from our regular programming for this special episode, Raven's Reviews. Hi, my camera went sideways. Okay. Hi, nice to meet you. They're so fabulous. Thank you. All right. Welcome to the Sirens Podcast. I'm your host, Raven Rollins, and today we are here with award-winning journalist and science writer and outdoors expert Catherine Miles. And she is here today to talk with us about her fifth book which is a true crime book called Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. And thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, I want to preface this with this is a bonus episode and uh, literally everything that I'm going to ask Catherine today is for sure in her book in super, super great detail. So if you want to deep dive into anything that we talk about here today, I suggest you go get trailed. So (laughs) tell me a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Um, I think I read somewhere that, was it your parents who worked at a newspaper or something like that? Actually, my godparents, who okay. are kind of like my grandparents. I grew up in the Midwest. We moved around a little bit, but mostly around Iowa and Illinois. And, you know, it was a pretty great childhood, you know, with parents who really loved to car camp and, you know, take us on hikes and take us fishing and things like that. So I think I loved the outdoors from a very early age. Um, I went to college at St. Louis University, thought I was going to be a journalist, but ended up really falling in love with philosophy and gender studies and environmental studies. And so I went on to do a PhD in that um, and taught college full time for about 15 years. And it was while I was doing that that I kind of went back to journalism always with this kind of environmental scientific focus with it and so now that's what I do full-time oh awesome before we jump into your current book I know you have four others 
the first one is Adventures with Ari. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of that one because you kind of are trying to see through your dog's eyes. I just love that idea. <laughs> Thank you. I had adopted this very wild puppy who was destroying my house. And so I decided the only way the relationship was going to survive was if we took our program outside. And so we spent a year in nature um and i was you know sort of trying to see like what does nature look like through a dog's eyes and because they're this really interesting animal that kind of has a foot in our world and a foot in the wild world and so she was such a great ambassador into the into the wilderness for me was her name actually ari it was her full name was uh bungari jangab which is korean for um glove without fingers because she had one little very dainty white paw she was a mix between her her dad was a a wolf dog a wolf siberian husky mix and then her mom was this um jindo which is a korean dog and so her name was sort of paying homage to her lineage (laughs) oh that's awesome i love that let me show you mine look at this look at this Oh my goodness. It's like a little Ewok. He is. He's with me every time I record. He's under the desk right now. What is his name? That's Elvis. Oh, that is fantastic. And he is, he's 16 and um, he just kind of is like, okay, you do your thing up there, mom. I'm going to take a nap. He's a distinguished gentleman. He, he, He is. And then, okay, so then your second book, All Standing, that was about... A ship and uh, carrying Irish people to escape their their country's famine, right? Right, right. There were five thousand of these Irish famine ships, and they had fatality rates that were worse than the slave ships. Um, and there was this one ship out of about five thousand that managed to keep all of its passengers alive, not just once, but over the course of about twelve journeys. And I was so interested in both what led to the famine. Um, and then what led to this mass exodus across the sea and how it was that um, a team of crew members could so altruistically do whatever they could to keep these these famine immigrants alive. That's so interesting. And I, I like pretty much anything that is like from like, I think that was from like the 1840s, right? Exactly. Okay, perfect. And then, of course, Superstorm about Hurricane Sandy in 2012. And then Quakeland, which explores earthquake threats in the United States. And you scared us all with that one. So thank you. That seems to be my new shtick is I'm the person who goes out of my way to scare you about some subject or another. Great. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Gonna say this a lot. You talked about this in the book. Um, But what kind of made you decide to go from writing things like this to a true crime book? Right. Yeah, no, that's a totally fair and good question. You know, the thing that really underlies all of my work, I think, is that I've always been really interested in the relationship that people form with their landscapes, whether it's the built or the natural landscape. And and for me, wilderness has always been a really big part of it. And so, you know, with the two books that came before it, I was really interested in the way in which risk and natural disaster was influencing the way people sort of responded to that. You know, I also kind of work as a, as a freelance journalist. And um, after I had finished Quakeland, I had written a series of articles about a woman who had gone missing on the Appalachian Trail. 
this incredible woman named Jerry Largay. She was 64. She was a retired nurse, grandmother. Um, she was doing a full hike of the Appalachian Trail, and she went missing here in Maine. And authorities initially really believed that it was foul play. And it was one of the biggest manhunts in Maine history. It took two years to unpack what had actually happened to her, which is that she had become just tragically lost. She had three days worth of food with her. She managed to keep herself alive for 20 days. And she kept this journal the whole time. And when she realized that she wasn't going to be found, she wrote these love letters to her family basically saying goodbye and I had covered that story really intensely um and it was after that that really this the idea for a trail kind of came about because I was so interested in kind of who we were on trails I had been thinking about this particular crime and these two really amazing individuals for like going on 20 years at that point and so it seemed like sort of a natural progression for me that sounds absolutely heartbreaking. <laughs> she was 64 and she was out there just getting it. That's insane to me. She was so hardcore and so brave. And honestly, three days worth of food. And she rationed it so that she could stay alive for 20 days. She was a total hero. And so getting a chance to tell her story and getting a chance to get to know her family members and her legacy and things like that was a really meaningful experience for me. Yeah, I, you know, um, a lot of people ask me why I do what I do. And really, I think that maybe we line up here on this, but true crime is human interest. It's human interest stories. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, and I think for me personally, you know, the thing with true crime is, you know, I, I, you know, don't get me wrong. I find abnormal psychology and criminal psychology like endlessly fascinating. But for me, the stories of the victims are usually the most interesting and compelling stories. And I think that that's really what motivates me too, is not just who are these killers and why do they kill and how do they kill, but who are the people and the legacies that they leave behind. Yeah. I don't know anything about this world. Before I read your book, I didn't even know like there was like this, this whole hiker culture. And it just like, it blew my mind. Like there are shelters and you know, they're, they have all of these aliases for each other and you know, they're tracking each other's progress. And it's just insane to me. When did you first really jump into this hiking, backpacking sort of um, world? And was that a, a shock to you as well? A little bit, yeah. You know, and it's been so much fun with the release of this book. I mean, there's a lot about this book that's not fun, obviously. But, you know, for me, having had, you know, one foot in the hiking culture for a long time and one foot in the true crime culture, to get to sort of introduce you all to each other at like this little party that I threw for myself is really really fantastic because they are two really distinct cultures. As I say in the book, I, uh, like Lolly and Julie, I was also a teenage sexual assault survivor. And after that happened, it was a date rape. After it happened, like I didn't tell anybody about it and I thought it was my fault. And I spent the next few years just trying to do everything I could to kind of like stay out of my body and act like my body didn't exist. And it wasn't until my junior year in college when I was taking an environmental studies course that had a mandatory backpacking trip on it, which by the way, I had no idea what I was doing. Like I showed up with like none of the right gear and like totally underdressed. And I think I threw like a box of cereal in my bag and I figured I'd eat that for three days. 
days and <laughs> get you some trail mix. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It wasn't even no even peanuts, right? There wasn't even any protein. Um, so I was a total train wreck, but I completely fell in love with it. And it was the first time in a long time that like feeling strong and feeling like back in my body was really important to me. And from that moment forward, backpacking and hiking and solo camping became like my salvation. And I don't even really use that word lightly. Like it really was, you know, and it was where I felt the safest and the strongest and the most secure. And I think that's why learning that not just these two individuals in my book, Lolly Winans and Julie Williams, but also, you know, 12 other individuals, most of whom were women, um, had been murdered doing this on the Appalachian Trail, which is where I was spending my time, was just so shocking and shattering to me that, you know, from that day forward, which was 1998, you know, these stories just stuck with me in a way that they were almost always present for me. We are doing, I'm really glad that you're on this month. Um, because we are kind of celebrating Pride Month here uh, at the Sirens Podcast this month. We have several um, different episodes that we've done, so I'm really, really glad that I get to have you on to tell Lolly and Julie's story, because for the most part, for me, I felt like maybe more than half of your book is like almost this love story, to maybe even a love letter to them. Um, because it's not just about their romance, but you know, it's about what they survived, what they went through growing up, how they found each other, how they found themselves. Would you tell us just a little bit, because like I just said, you go into so much detail in your book, but would you tell us just a little bit about each of the girls? Absolutely. And let me just say it warms my heart so much to hear you say that you see this book as part of love story because that was so important to me. And so I love that that got across to readers. Julie and Lolly were really just these extraordinary humans. Julie grew up in a small town in Minnesota in this very tight-knit Catholic community. And by the time she was in high school, her friends were referring to her as a one-woman Peace Corps. She was fluent in Spanish, and she had been translating for domestic abuse survivors. She did missionary work in Central and South America. She was a geologist who had gone on these like crazy digs in Europe and was working on native tribal lands in, in northern Minnesota. And in May of 1995, she showed up at this really fantastic organization called Woods Women, which was this sort of like feminist-centric approach to outdoor recreation. And she was taking a leadership course there. She wanted to be a guide. And um, that same month, May of 1995, Lolly Winans showed up to also take the leadership course um, as part of her internship at a college called Unity College. And Lolly had grown up in this very, very affluent family. She was she was an incest survivor. She kind of like struggled to make sense of that. Um, but she was also just this like bright and shining star. She was always like the center of any, you know, party or gathering. She loved the Grateful Dead. She loved fish and other jam bands. She was like the most generous friend you've ever met. Um, and she had really found her calling um, with this idea of outdoor recreation and the idea that she could create a wilderness therapy program that would let other sexual assault survivors find that same kind of like sense of self and, and strength in the wilderness that she had found. 
So they both showed up in May of 1995. By all accounts, it was love at first sight. These two like gorgeous, talented humans just couldn't get enough of each other. And that whole summer was just this really beautiful romance for them. Um, and it was really important to me that I tell not just that story about who they were as individuals, but also this really amazing love story that in a lot of ways was like ahead of its time. It was not easy by any stretch to be out in 1995 and 1996. No, they were like super brave beyond beyond anything I can imagine. I mean, they're so adventurous. And, and, um, and I wanted to ask you, because you say like in your book, they were basically, they were outdoors experts. Um, you yourself are an outdoors expert. I am a homebody, <laughs> so I have no idea what that means. <laughs> and I feel like that my, some of my listeners probably don't know either. So what does that entail? What does that mean? Well, for them, for Lolly, for instance, she was at Unity College, this little environmental studies college here in Maine, where I was a professor for 15 years. Um, and so all of the majors at Unity College had an environmental focus. She was studying what at the time was called outdoor recreation, but is now called adventure therapy of leadership. So basically, how do you be an expert guide in the wilderness to take groups out? And, you know, for her, the groups she really wanted to take out were these sexual assault survivors. Julie, you know, had grown up in a family that, you know, canoed and camped and things like that. And so she was going to get similarly trained to be this, this leader that could take trips. And this organization, Woods Women, was founded by these like badass women in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And they were like, why is the outdoors, why is this such a like male, like white male pursuit? That's bullshit, right? And so they created this space <laughs> right. where women who had never felt safe in the wilderness or never even thought about, you know, sleeping on the ground in the middle of nowhere could go do that. And so it brought together women from all kinds of different like social groups and like political beliefs and things like that. They also had a really strong articulated mission for inner city women and their kids who had never had a wilderness experience. And so it was such a like just redemptive, holistic, like consensus based place and it really redefined outdoor recreation and really opened up the wilderness for entire groups of people who had never had the opportunity before that's so awesome like i i would love to get out um i've gone camping a couple times but i'm not gonna lie to you it scares me like it terrifies me because i'm like you know, that you have that thing in the back of your mind, like, is the boogeyman out there? You've heard all these stories. And there are organizations out there, even currently, that are trying to help keep people safe, right? When they're camping and when they're hiking. and Yeah, and that's been one of the things that I've really loved about this book tour is getting a chance to kind of shine a light on some of these organizations because there are way too many people who feel exactly like you do and for very good reason, which is like, am I safe here? Do I belong here? You know, and if you look at like glossy magazines dedicated to things like hiking or backpacking or kayaking, it tends to be these like buff, attractive white guys so if you're not a buff yes. attractive white guy 
right? Like, then do you even belong there? You know? And so, so for a lot of people because of their race or their ethnicity or their gender and their sexual orientation, or even just like their body type and, you know, body size and things don't feel like they belong in the wilderness. And so there's been some really great movements in recent years, like, um, Outdoor Afro and my current very favorite organization, which is called Fat Girls Hiking. They have a brand new book out, which is like, look, you know, we're not the buff, like, bro, you know, but we still totally want to be out in the wilderness. And they've done so much to create a more inclusive space. And that is very long overdue. Awesome. I want to ask you about... So this case actually came on your radar after you had heard about another case. Which case was that? Was that the Claudia Brenner case? Am I right on that? Yeah, that was part of it. I was in 19, the fall of 1998, I was backpacking on the Appalachian Trail and I had stopped for what I thought was the night um, at this shelter, which is, you know, about every 20 miles, there's a shelter where if you don't want to set up your tent and stuff, you can just kind of sleep there and it was like a spooky November kind of creepy Blair witchy kind of day and I was like all right I think I'm gonna I'm gonna turn in now and um they were in the process of tearing down that shelter and building another one and I stopped one of the trail volunteers to ask like why are you tearing down this shelter and they said oh well we have to because of the murders and you know I was literally sitting there eating an apple and I was like wait what you know And so, so as it turned out, this, this super awesome couple, Molly LaRue and Jeff Hood, had been backpacking through there, um, had set up at that very shelter where I was sitting for the night and had been just brutally murdered, um, which is why they were tearing it down. And so that was so creepy to me. And there was like zero way, zero chance that I was going to sleep where this like awful murder had occurred. Um, so I set up my tent like, you know, a half mile down and had like the worst night of my entire life. Like this thunderstorm came through. I was convinced there was a murderer outside of my tent. It was, I I don't know if I've ever been so scared. And when I got back to where I was going to grad school at the University of Delaware, I started doing some research and that's when I learned about these other murders as well, like Claudia Brenner and Rebecca White, as you mentioned, who um, were shot. Rebecca White was murdered. Claudia Brenner had five bullets in her, you know, and managed to hike out you know, hoping to save her partner and the love of her life and everything. And so hearing about these stories, I was like, oh my God, like what is the wilderness, you know? And speaking of that, so this is, this really has the one thing that has nothing to do with your book. Um, But we've had the Girl Scout murders here in Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, And so I was just kind of wondering maybe your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's the case that I've been really interested in, too. And it's just one of those cases where, you know, when I was talking to Claudia Brenner, after all of this had happened to her, she wrote this amazing book called Eight Bullets, which was about the murder and the aftermath and how hard it was to identify as queer and, you know, have that be part of an investigation. And when I was asking her about the reverberations of these sorts of crimes, what she had said to me was, you know, it kind of doesn't matter why the perpetrator does this violence, you know, whether they're singling out people because of their social groups. She said they are absolutely hate crimes in the sense that 
the reverberations and the ripple effects impact people who I, who identify in that way long after the crime. And I think the Girl Scout murders is a great example of that, of, you know, these, these crimes that even if you didn't know anyone involved impact people, I think especially people who identify as female or non-binary so intensely that they're like, if that could happen to them, it could happen to me or my daughter or my child or my niece or my nephew or whoever else, you know, and that's where it really is a hate crime where, you know, there's that primary impact of the victims and the victims' families, but there's a very long lasting secondary impact of people who are like, oh God, I can't possibly go out into the wilderness. And speaking of hate crimes, um, Lolly and Julie's was the first federally indicted hate crime, right? Like the first ever. Right. Yeah. You know, and if you think about it, like they were murdered two and a half years before Matthew Shepard, you know, and so um, it wasn't initially treated as a hate crime. It was only in 2002 when John Ashcraft, who was the attorney general, announced that this would become the first federal hate crime. Um, and, and, you know, we can kind of unpack whether that was legitimate or not, but it certainly brought the story into really stark national attention. And also, I think, was ultimately part of why that um, I think some sloppy investigative and prosecutorial work happened because it became this, you know, very political, very high profile case all of a sudden. Yeah. And that is usually the downside of you have ups and downs of, of getting a high profile or getting the case to be high profile because you might be able to, you know, track down people um, that may have seen something or heard something, but then on the complete other hand of that, you've got people who are politicizing the case itself. And so, you know, it's like, where's the happy medium here? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, Lolly and Julie were pretty discreet, which is to say hugely discreet about their relationship to the point that their family and friends didn't know they were outed the day of their funerals and they were outed in the national media. And then when Ashcroft grabbed the case away from the investigators and the prosecutors, again, he made it primarily about their sexuality in a way that their family and friends were really, I think, offended by. And also, I think, tried to force this, you know, square peg into a round hole of this indicted person as this, you know, hate crime, you know, homophobic, misogynistic person to the point that we see the entire Department of Justice and especially the FBI really manipulating evidence in this case in a way that's like borderline criminal, in my opinion. Yes, yes. And I have a lot of, I have so many questions to get to, <laughs> but yes. But first I wanted to ask you, so I have spoken to several authors and it, you know, when they decide to take on one specific like true crime case, write a true crime book, it obviously takes a lot of investigating. It takes a lot, like years and years of research and investigation and, and you literally have to pour your entire soul into it. Was there ever a point before you maybe fully decided to do this, that you were like, man, I don't know if I'm mentally prepared. Um, if, is there anything that you did to prepare yourself for this? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, so I was really worried about undertaking this book project. You know, I was really aware of 
you know, Michelle McNamara's story and the real toll that writing All Be Gone in the Dark had had on her, which, you know, in, in not insignificant ways, I think, contributed to her very early and tragic death. And, you know, she's one of multiple writers. There's another writer named David Carr who ended up committing suicide, you know, after he was covering these cases. There's a really great environmental writer named Annette McGivney who had covered a really brutal murder that had happened right outside of the Grand Canyon. And, you know, as she says in her book, she basically had a complete and total emotional breakdown. And so I was well aware that these very smart, talented, strong writers had succumbed to the emotional weight of these stories. And I was also really well aware that I am such a like sponge where emotions are concerned that I empathic exactly (laughs) that I was going to absolutely head down that road before I even knew I was heading down it and so I really pushed back against the idea of doing this book for a while because I was really worried that it might literally consume me we're gonna have um Jax Miller on later in the the season and she kind of went through the same thing like you know taking on a case (laughs) it seems like every writer I've talked to is like four years that's when that's how long (laughs) it takes exactly four years (laughs) so but I mean you think like in the terms of your forever life four years isn't very long but you live breathe and eat that this one specific case you know for four consecutive years and it can definitely take a toll on you for sure 100 percent. you know and one of the things i say in the book is that you know when you think about true crime as it gets presented on you know say like a netflix series or something it's really well edited and it's almost like sanitized right so you get maybe like a blurry image of a body or like a blood splatter or things like that but it's so just sanitized you know and and all of those filters and all of those rules are off the table when you're actually investigating it and so you know i I cannot describe like what it is to sit with crime scene photos and autopsy photos, you know, especially of people that you feel emotionally invested in or sitting with family members who, you know, 25 years later still just sob at the idea, you know, that their daughters or their sisters or whatever were taken from them. And so, you know, it's such a dark world and I have so much respect for the investigators and the defense attorneys and the forensic psychologists who are willing to really get in the trenches and do this because there's just like no release for them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm still having to come to terms with like uh, victim family interviews because I'm like, I have so many questions and I sit down in front of them and and I think I'm the same as you. I'm just like, I'm so empathetic that like if you cry I'm gonna cry and then this whole thing is off and we can't do any of it and so like I really have great respect for people who just keep going and like most of the time disregard for their own mental health and and um really just want to tell these people's stories because they absolutely deserve to be told so do you have like rituals and things you do to to leave those interviews and be able to kind of move on and, and live like a normal, healthy life? What do you do? Nothing. I do, <laughs> I do not. I do. 
No, I mean, you know, I think I'm just, I'm just too empathetic and I'm just going to have to, I haven't figured it out after almost three years. I still haven't figured out how to leave that, you know, in the office or whatever. It just, it's always with me, always. And I, you know, um, most of us, people like you, the ones who decide that you're going to take this case and you're going to write a whole book about it you know I say those are your heart cases Mm. those are the ones where you can see yourself um you you almost don't even have to be empathetic because there's so many similarities with that that person or that case or their family or their lives or whatever that you just kind of put yourself automatically in their shoes and um I think all of us have a heart case really was this kind of your heart case 100% and I love that term so much I'm gonna borrow it if it's okay and I promise I'll give you credit for it but yeah no and and it's you know I mean there were some really dark days for me and there are still some really dark days for me but when I'm sort of at my lowest with all of this I can go back to who Lolly and Julie were as people I can go back to their love for each other I can go back to their family and friends who I've you know gotten to know really well over the the past five years um and also some of the people working on this case you know I uh I partnered with the founder of the Virginia Innocence Project to reinvestigate the case and um if any of your listeners heard Daedra, right? <laughs> and so if you heard the first series of Serial, the first season of Serial, you may know her as a character in that. And she is such a just badass woman. And, you know, watching her do the work that she does every single day to get innocent people on death row to get their lives back, you know, knowing that she may have to watch their executions it's such an inspiration for me because I can go write a different book about a different subject. She can't leave this. This is her entire life and it will be for the rest of her life, you know? And so people like that are such an inspiration for me that they keep me going when I feel like I'm done. I think I, you know, that's one of my favorite parts I think about um, doing what I do is that you don't realize how many like-minded people are out in the world and they're up doing something they're they're trying they're taking action and you know you get to meet all of these people along the way and form these bonds that you never thought that you would ever form in your life it's really powerful and I feel like there's something really unique about the true crime community too in that is that you know I think first of all it takes a certain person to want to do a deep dive into one of these things and I've been so just heartened and kind of inspired by the people who don't have a formal background in investigations or forensic psychology or whatever but they're like I'm committed to moving this case along if we all work together and crowdsource it we can move this case along I mean we saw that with the Zodiac Killer Cypher two years ago right like three total amateurs get together and they solve it right and that's so exciting to me you know to be able to do that work together even if you're geographically apart and so that's been one of my favorite things about this community people consume their information in different ways some people love to read some people love to watch movies or series some people like to listen to podcasts and and all of those things kind of intertwine together and so when you have someone who is trying to share all of this information try to get this you know information out about like a certain case or whatever um it's really cool to see how 
you know, authors and podcasters come together. Um, or, you know, I just heard that you just sold the film rights. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's just really cool um, that you can just reach a bigger audience. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. And we all work together. And when I was, you know, when I was, when I was writing the book, especially because this is not a closed case, it was really important to me that right. I sort of present the information that I could as objectively as possible so that readers could also participate, you know, because what I want more than anything is for this case to be closed for Lolly and Julie's friends and family to have closure for right the hiking community to have closure. And so, you know, I present the case against this guy who was indicted, Daryl David Rice. I present that case. And then I also present the case against at least one, and I would argue maybe a couple of other really good suspects, um, because I want readers to be able to do what the FBI hasn't been willing to do, which is really pursue alternative suspects and come to a conclusion. And so it's really my hope that the book like is starting a conversation as much as anything else. That's something that you actually talk about a lot in the book is this thing called confirmation bias where you hear something and that's that's just the truth of it and it's almost like when you're on the side of the police maybe that's what you would see as tunnel vision or you know um, something like that but tell me tell me a little bit how, about what you've seen of the confirmation bias and you I believe even said yourself that you had it a little bit going into this case right 100% and I'll be the first to admit that I I really came into this case assuming that the Department of Justice is always on the side of truth, that the FBI is really good at solving cases, that these investigators are always kind of open-minded and looking for the truth. And so if they, if, you know, the Department of Justice came to us and said, Daryl David Rice must have killed Lolly and Julie, and we've indicted him and we're gonna seek the death penalty against him, I assumed he must be guilty. You know, um, and, and it was quite a while into the research for the book that I was like, he must be guilty because they wouldn't have indicted him otherwise. And it was really only after I started getting access to a lot of the um, evidence in the case that I was like, wait, wait a minute. Like, they don't actually have any evidence against this guy. And, you know, one of the things that I did was basically try to talk to anybody who would talk to me who had any kind of background in this. And I talked to several of the FBI agents who had worked the Yosemite murders, um, which, you know, eventually became clear were the work of Carrie Stainer. Um, and so what they told me was, you know, after the first three women were killed, we actually interviewed Carrie Stainer. But at the time, we were so sure that we already knew who the killer was that even though Carrie Stainer said some really suspicious things, we were like, well, it can't be him. You know, so we let him go. And then he went on to commit at least one other murder. And it was these agents being willing to own that for me that was really, really, I think, helpful for my research. And it wasn't that they didn't have any evidence in the case because they did and they still do. It's just that they didn't have it against Rice. And they were trying to make that fit together and it just wasn't fitting. And they still... They still, like if you talk to the to the, the two investigators who were most intimately involved in this case, they will still tell you that they are completely convinced 
that Daryl Rice did it, despite the fact that they don't have any evidence, despite the fact that I mentioned earlier that they sought the death penalty against him because they were so convinced that he hated gay people, that he that they had a quote, they had a tape of him saying, I hate gay people. And it wasn't until Deirdre Enright and his defense team said, well, could we listen to that tape? That they heard the context, which was Rice talking to a microphone informant in his cell. And he, he said, man, I'm so angry. And the guy's like, why are you angry? And he was like, well, I'm really angry because they keep trying to make me say that I hate gay people. And you know, the informant was like, dude, that's whack. And Rice is like, right? I don't hate gay people. And all they did was snip that one little sentence, not only out of context, but like turned it on its head 180 degrees. And the fact that our, our Department of Justice would do that to get a high profile conviction really shook me and made me rethink how these crimes are investigated and prosecuted. Yeah, you would think that they would want the person that actually did it to be off the streets. You know, you suspect that this case has to do with possibly a serial killer, right? I do. So Lolly and Julie were murdered in late May of 1996. We think they were murdered on May 28th of 1996. In March of 1996, right outside of Shenandoah National Park, which is where Lolly and Julie were murdered, another young woman named Alicia Showalter Reynolds was murdered under pretty similar circumstances. Um, So that was the first murder. Then we have Lolly and Julie. That's murder number two and number three. Over the course of the next year, there were five other murders of women and teenager, teenage girls in this very small kind of radius of rural Virginia, a place that had previously seen next to no violent and deadly crime. We know one individual was responsible for at least three of those of those eight murders. And I try to kind of offer an argument in the book about why I think that he might have been responsible for even more. So you are holding up this awesome map that this amazing cartographer named Margot Carpenter did. It's one of three maps that we put in the book that shows just how, I mean, look at that. It's a circle, right? It's absolutely insane. Now tell me how large, because most of my listeners are Southern. This is a Southern true crime podcast. And so I have no idea about this national park or how large it is. Um, Can you tell our listeners just a little bit about the park itself? Sure. So Shenandoah National Park is, I describe it as like a lizard. So it's kind of like long and narrow and squiggly. If you can kind of picture like a lizard on a log. Um, And it was founded, one of the things that was really interesting to me was that when it was founded, um, thousands of Appalachian people, like Appalachian homesteaders, were evicted from their land in order to create this national park. And there is a lot of very long-standing animosity about the fact that people were like forcibly removed from their homes to create this park. One of the things that's really interesting about the park is that it's like, you know, this long, narrow squiggle and there's basically one road that goes through the long, narrow squiggle called Skyline Drive. And that's always really busy. Like if we were to show up right now, there would be like a bunch of cars and people taking pictures and things like that. And it's kind of running on the back along the backbone of the Appalachian Mountains. But if you get on either side of that road, 
it's like really remote and really rural and really wooded. You know, you're not going to see other people. You're not going to see like tent sites and fire pits and things like that. So in one way, it's really remote, but it's also only an hour and a half away from Washington, D.C. And so it gets a lot of traffic for people as well, too. And it's been a really challenging part to manage for people. And of course, these maps are literally within her book. Um, And it it even shows on here where these other girls were found, where Julie and and Lolly were camping at. And if you just look at it like an overview, you think, oh, well, those aren't very far apart. They are actually pretty close. And what's also really interesting to me is that there's a lot of really some important similarities i think between these murders multiple of these murders involve you know either women or teenage girls um who were found bound and gagged um duct tape was involved in multiple ones um there was sexual assault but sexual assault with like um external objects if i can say um and then and then yeah and then all of these these women all of their bodies were found um, left in these super wilderness settings. Most of them were like wrapped up in either a sleeping bag or a blanket. Many of them were found near a river. Um, and again, this is a super rural, pretty safe part of Virginia. And so, you know, one of the founders of the FBI's behavioral analyst unit was like, you know, it's pretty rare to have one serial killer working in an area and the idea that there's two serial killers working here seems pretty close to impossible hey it's happened did anybody live in california in the 70s (laughs) come on fair enough (laughs) um but all of the things that you just mentioned has a lot of similarities to um julian lolly's crime scene right Right. Yeah. And that was why, you know, and again, once um, once Daryl Rice kind of came the focus for the FBI and the National Park Service police, they were really only interested in him. Um, and it wasn't until um, this known serial killer who had killed three of these victims kidnapped a young woman named Kara Robinson. She was 15 years old and she just heroically managed to escape Um and report him to authorities and then prompted this high-speed chase and he ended up committing suicide as the police were kind of bearing down on him. And at that point, the FBI was like, whoa, okay, this guy is a super bad, creepy dude. And also, you know, we know he's murdered at least three people. He's kidnapped another one who he fully intended to murder. And so the FBI created a task force dedicated to looking at this guy, Mark Ivanitz, for other murders across the country, you know, spanning from Florida to California to Maine. And they did briefly look at him for the Shenandoah murder to the extent that they even compared his DNA to the DNA found at the crime scene. And the FBI lab told them, this is an almost perfect match. You cannot rule this guy out as a suspect. And then the FBI was like, thanks very much, but we're done looking at Mark Ivanitz for any other crimes. Could you just run that DNA and sterile rice, even though it didn't match the five other times that you ran it? And that was where, again, as like an investigative journalist, I'm like, what the hell is going on here? They have tested rice against every scrap of evidence found at that murder scene, and none of it matches him. And, you know, obviously that doesn't 
prove that somebody didn't do it, right? But but they can't, they don't have any evidence proving that Rice did it, you know? And then meanwhile, they have this known serial killer who's killed other people, you know, in a very similar fashion right around the park you know the 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 crime lab comes back and says look we ran this dna at 600 positions right 600 points and at 599 points this guy's dna matches the dna found at the crime scene and the fbi is like yeah we're not gonna look into that anymore which is like for me that's criminal that's that's insane to me like that's that makes no sense to me you're i mean and that's what like is the tunnel vision why do you want this guy so bad he doesn't match but here's this other guy we're telling you like we cannot rule him out in any form or fashion why do you think we we're so tunneled in on rice I think there's a couple of things going on. I think, first of all, because this was such a high-profile case, because it was the first federal hate crime and got so much attention, I feel like the Department of Justice wasn't willing to backtrack and say they got it wrong because they were so public about saying that they got it right. So I think that's part of it. I think that, you know, some of the investigators who were working on this crime, first of all, all of the lead investigators who worked on this crime were not homicide experts. When a crime happens in these wilderness public lands like the National Park Service, basically what happens is the FBI has to team up with the National Park Service police, right? So first of all, those are two radically different cultures, as I talk about in the book, and they don't really like each other. And neither of them really have experience as homicide detectives. I think in a lot of ways, like a local town or county homicide detective is going to have infinitely more experience than these investigators did. And so they didn't really know, I think, what they were doing. They were like super stressed out. Like, and, and then they also were kind of, um, I don't want to say backwards. Can I say like parochial maybe or provincial in there? You can say whatever you want. <laughs> so because because this other guy, Mark Avonitz, because three of his victims were teenagers, they all decided, well, he's a pedophile. Because if you like a 15-year-old, you must be a pedophile. Which, by the way, is not the definition of pedophilia, right? Pedophilia is a sexual attraction to a prepubescent person. These were like, yes, they were young teenage girls, women, but their bodies, you know, were like fully formed sexual bodies. You know, they're so convinced that he's a pedophile because some of his victims were in their teens that they're like, well, Lolly and Julie were 24 and 26. So you can't like a 15 year old and a 24 and a 26 year old. And then, you know, they were like, we, we, you know, we got into his house and we looked at all of his stuff and we looked at his porn and his porn collection involved like women who were like waxed or shaved. So that's other proof that he's, you know, a pedophile. And in my head, I'm like, seen porn? Because everybody is waxed <laughs> and shaved, you know? And so, it, but it was that kind yeah. of like small town thinking that really kind of led them to say it's impossible that this guy could have, you know, killed these two young looking 24 and 26 year olds. Also, something that you talk about, um, there is no system 
put in place for reporting on violent crimes in national parks, right? This was really disturbing to me. So it's at the sort of whim of whoever is the superintendent of a national park, you know? And so one park may decide to report a violent crime. Another park may decide not to. Some parks don't even have any law enforcement rangers working there. And so we don't, I mean, the, the, the story that I got, the conclusion that I came to doing the research for this book was we don't even know how many violent crimes are actually happening in our national parks. We don't even know to what degree they're safe and dangerous. And, you know, couple that with the number of people who are already feeling unsafe in the wilderness. And we have a major problem that as a country, we we have, a, I think, an ethical and moral responsibility to be working much harder on. We didn't really talk about the crime scene um, because as you mentioned, like this is like, it's pretty gory. It's pretty, and you describe everything in such detail that I really think that, you know, if you want to know exactly what happened to these girls, if you want to see the timeline of what happened, um, you know, exactly when, where, how, and what. Listeners out there, if you want to know about it, you're going to have to go by Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. The most important part here is what do you think that we should be doing collectively as a whole at maybe even the highest level to try to keep people safe outdoors? Mm, Yeah, it's such a good question. You know, I mean, the national park system, for instance, has like a $6 billion backlog of, you know, maintenance. And that's not just physical maintenance. It's also like training and equipping rangers. So that's part of it. I think there's also like there's been a pretty pervasive like version of toxic masculinity in terms of the wilderness and a certain set of white men, which I think, you know, thankfully is a very tiny set of white men who honestly think like the wilderness is theirs and rules don't apply to them. And so, you know, there's been these other murders of people like Meredith Emerson, people like, you know, Claudia, you know, Brenner and Rebecca White, um, other National Park Service murders where when the perpetrators are actually brought to justice, you know, their defense is basically, well, the women deserved it or I was hunting and they were my prey. And so until we address that and make it so that people don't get to do that in the wilderness, um, then we do have the safety problem and we do have good reason for some people to be like, am I okay if I go out there? That being said, what are some of your personal safety tips for us ladies who, or, or gentlemen, who maybe want to get out into the wilderness. Yeah, and I think, you know, if the idea of being alone in the wilderness is creepy to you, I think, you know, finding a group or an organization, like I belong, I, I love to trail run. It's my favorite thing in the world. I belong to a trail running group where, you know, we meet up on Monday nights and we run together. And if you, you know, have meet up as an app on your phone, you know, there there's always hiking groups of like super awesome humans who are totally worth your time anyway. Um, so that's the first thing. And then I think, you know, investing in these organizations that I mentioned before, who are really trying to create inclusivity for the wilderness is super important as well. And last question, is Rice the Route 29 killer? No. <laughs> 
absolutely not. <laughs> I will stake my reputation on that 100%. <laughs> I knew what your answer was going to be, but I had to ask you because um, it was just so ridiculous. <laughs> Even know about the Route 29 killer and stalker, and yeah, no, I I firmly believe in Daryl Rice's evidence innocence. I believe that this is a social justice catastrophe. You know, the Justice Department completely ruined the life of Daryl Rice in a way that he's never going to get it back again. And I would have zero problems going on a backpacking trip with Daryl Rice and feeling completely safe while I was doing it. They did prosecute him actually, and then they ended up where they um, dismiss the case without prejudice, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I should say, you know, to be totally transparent, you know, Dale Rice got on the radar of the FBI, the National Park Service Police, because he did harass um, and threaten a woman who was cycling in Shenandoah National Park in 1997. And, you know, I think it's really important to acknowledge that um it's also important to acknowledge that he served his time for that crime and has never been connected to another crime um but yes you're absolutely right so when faced with no evidence against him the federal government dismissed this case without prejudice which means that this guy is one of the only people in this entire country basically lives in a state of double jeopardy where the federal government can bring back this capital case against him whenever they want to you know and he you know that plus the publicity plus the fbi insisting that he did it has basically meant that he can't even live in the world anymore he basically lives underground anonymously as like a quasi homeless person because it's the only way he feels safe you know and given that not only did he serve the sentence for the one thing he did and that there's no evidence to suggest that he did these crimes you know we i think as a country we owe him his life back and what we've taken away from him i actually am with you on that i think that well at least after reading your book <laughs> um because you just you lay everything out so well uh and you you didn't leave any stone unturned so you know thank you so much for being with me today i'm so glad that you were here uh, talking with me about this today i'm so glad to be here i really appreciate you giving time to lolly and julie's story and i really hope your listeners will feel free to kind of join in this hunt to close this case because I can use all the help I can get for sure. Absolutely. And thank you listeners for tuning in today. You can find Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders in Bookstores Near You on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. I have both the hardback and the audible version and um, you can also go to the sirenspodcast.com slash author alley for those links or a bio or www.katherinemiles.net we'll catch you next time on the sirens podcast Thanks for listening to this episode of Raven's Reviews. Catch more next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?